0: It's Dua Lipa here with At Your Service. Welcome back to my podcast series, where I sit down with some of the world's brightest creative minds for conversations you won't want to miss. And when I say brightest creative minds, that only barely covers the star of the episode you've just begun listening to. What can I even begin to say about today's guest that doesn't simply scratch the surface of his iconic life and career? Sir Elton John is one of pop culture's preeminent figures, a man whose voice, talent and kindness has transcended time and space. He's a mogul, a maverick, a music legend and a multi-talented man who is one of the best selling artists of all time who I'm very, very lucky to call my friend. Last fall, Elton released the Lockdown Sessions, which featured artists such as Nicki Minaj, Charlie Puth, Rina Sawayama, Lil Nas X, Yo-Yo Ma, Stevie Nicks, and yes, yours truly, <laughs> singing alongside our hero. Just recently, he re-embarked on his Farewell Yellow Brick Road tour, a hip-packed bon voyage that will take him across the world for what he's calling his final bow. Though I'm positive we haven't seen or heard the last of what he has to offer us. I could truly go on and on about this bright light in my life and yours, but I think it might be best to just say, without further ado, that today's very, very special at-your-service guest is the one and only, the incomparable, the singular, Elton John, whose 75th birthday is today, the day this episode comes out. Happy birthday! I hope you enjoy the conversation and make sure to send him some love on Instagram. Mwah! How are you doing? Hi, gorgeous. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so happy to have you on at your service. Oh, you're welcome. It's been great because I've been so lucky to invite people that I really admire, but it's also so nice to talk to someone that I class as a friend as well. Right. So thank you so much. Are you in, uh, where are you at the moment? Are you in Windsor? I'm in Windsor
1: at home. And then on Sunday, I'm leaving for America to start my tour, fingers crossed. Oh, um, nice. we going to go to New Orleans. Oh, my so, God,
0: so exciting. I don't know
1: whether I'm looking forward to it or not. I mean, I'm looking forward to playing, but i do not not looking forward to the tight COVID rules that we've got to observe on the tour. You know, it's going to be in a bubble.
0: Yeah, it's the it's same for us as well. It's just like the bubbling and having to make sure, you know, we can't really go out and do different things. But hopefully we no, can try and make it, it fun out, along the way. can't see anybody. Well, during the pandemic, we were also able to kind of put on a show with the studio 2054 performance
1: yeah i know it was great and i did rocket man and
0: yeah that we did together
1: yeah and the show was such a great success
0: she packed my bags last night pre-flight
1: zero hour nine a.m and i'm gonna be home I think people really wanted to see something because they were shut down and, you know, mm. no entertainment live. And I think the fact that you did the live stream is just a, a stroke of genius. How many people watched it? I mean, millions and millions, right? Yeah, it
0: was about five million people watched it. I mean, it was surreal because it was one of the few things that we were able to do during the pandemic where, yeah. you know, it was seen as like, because it was like a TV show that we were able to still continue having a crew on set, being really safe, but being able to put on a performance. So it was... It was really special and I'll never forget when you performed. I was there side of stage. I was watching it all happen and it just gave me a whole new like lease of energy for the final act of the show. I just couldn't believe it was happening. I was I was Well just... that was
1: why it worked because it didn't like a proper <laughs> show. And it wasn't, yeah. you know, it wasn't amateur night out. It looked properly produced and it was great. It was just a fantastic live stream. So um well done. And I think going to be alone.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. I was trying to bring that Studio 54 energy, which I know that you've You've been a part of. Yes. You've had some amazing nights, some debaucherous nights, I think. Debaucherous
1: uh, <laughs> nights. It, it, was always very de- it was always very debaucherous at Studio 54. Tell um, me about it. To be honest with you, I used to go there to dance because it was the start of great disco music. The DJ was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And the music was just, there were great people to sit there and talk to on the booths, in the booths and whatever. But mostly I was up and down because I loved to dance and the music was so fabulous. And I remember taking Rod Stewart there, and he didn't want to dance. And I said, come on, get on the floor. (laughs) And so I had a a bottle of poppers, um, and I shoved it under his nose. And we were on the dance floor (laughs) for an hour and a half. And uh, it was just great fun. Also, the characters that were there. I mean, forget the celebrities, Mm. Roll Arena, Sterling St. Jack, people who dressed up. It was such great characters. And all they came to do is dance, basically. You know, that's what they wanted to do. And that's what we mostly did. And then, of course, if you fancied someone, you had to um, wait a long time because I usually fancied barmen and people like that. And so <laughs> you had to wait till they got off work, by which time you were so drunk you couldn't really do anything anyway. So, um, but it, the whole point of going to Studio 54 was, <gasps> was to have to fun. Dance. Was to dance, basically.
0: I love that. I feel like we're missing some energies like that, especially the past two years. It's just, I think we're all craving oh, of course we are. a dance. We're ready to, to see you on tour. We're ready to go out.
1: Yeah, I think people are desperate to go out and dance and burn off steam and go and see live gigs. I mean, the live gigs that have mm. happened at the end of last year was, you know, were met with just incredible responses, Reading, leads, Absolutely. people like Sam Fender having the most incredible time. And it was just great for people to go and just burn off steam and see live action. I mean, I haven't played since March the 7th in 2020, oh a God. live show. And I really am—I don't know what to expect. I hope it's going to be as much fun as I think it's going to be, but you honestly don't know. I mean, these people haven't seen me for a long time, and it's the last time they are going to see me, so I'm hoping that it's going to be fantastic. So um, who knows? We don't know. But I have a feeling that people will go nuts no matter who's on stage
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, I think the energy is gonna be absolutely amazing. I think people, like we just said, are craving so much for a night out, for a dance, to come and listen to the music, to experience that, you know, that energy. Yeah. So I think it's gonna be I think it's gonna be absolutely amazing.
1: Well, let's talk about you. You haven't really had a chance to go out and do future nostalgia life, have you?
0: Well, I was just about to say, you know, you said your last performance was March seventh, twenty twenty. I think mine was around The same time, the last performance I did was Mardi Gras in Sydney. Right. And I was there doing like a sweaty club show with lots of people. It was really fun. It was kind of the first time I was performing songs from Future Nostalgia. I was gearing up for tour and then I landed in London and all of a sudden everything just shut down. And then I've just been postponing it, postponing it, postponing it. But now I'm ready. I'm ready to go out. I'm ready to dance I, I'm out. dying
1: to see this show. <laughs> I am dying to see this show. You have Where to Where do you start? Yeah,
0: I'll come see you uh, and you come see me and we'll we'll have a little dance.
1: I'll, a little dance? We'll have a big dance. We'll have a big um, dance. <laughs> well, I know that your show is going to be fantastic because it's got so much great material and the energy that you're going to put out with all these songs. And I know that you've been in the studio already. How are you getting along with the new one? Is it nearly finished?
0: Uh, close, close. It's like um, I want to say maybe fifty percent of the way. I've still got, okay. I've still got lots more to do. But it's starting to feel good. It's starting yep. to take shape. I'm very excited about some of the new songs. So yep. it's always exciting to to look forward towards something. And you've said so frequently that you don't actually like looking backwards. You know, you kind of like no, to not just really. look forward and, you know.
1: Well, I'm going to put our song in the show. I'm, I'm going to come out for the encore and sing Cold Heart. We have to film you doing your bit yet, but we haven't done it. But we're yeah, going to have gonna, you on the video. I'm going to film that now yeah. while
0: I'm in New York. I'm very okay. excited to do that. Okay,
1: great. Because I think it's such a global hit and it's a huge hit that if I didn't do it, people would be disappointed. And, um, you know, it went back to number one in Australia. It's, we've been Number one in Australia six times but never consecutive <laughs> weeks it's gone Just one, two, one, two, one. I know it's great but I can't thank you enough because you know with the lockdown sessions, in my album with having a single like that as the first single which came out in August in Europe mm. and everywhere around the world but in Australia of course it's now summertime so it's a big dance record and it's had so much legs and yeah. uh, it doesn't seem to want to go away which I'm grateful for and It was so lucky. I'm a great believer in happenstance and fate. And we were both in Los Angeles at the Mm -hmm. same time and we mentioned it to you and said, have a listen, see what you think, play it by the pool. And then you had the, you were so sweet, you rang us at the house in LA and you (laughs) said, I'm in. And from that point on, it was history. And, uh, you know, it's been, probably it's going to be my biggest ever single.
0: it's so amazing to be a part of this moment of a song that well of of two songs that i love so much you know merging rocket man and sacrifice together to create something new is really like moving forward with the times like what made you feel like that was like the right thing to do at this moment especially with the lockdown sessions album and like you know this collaboration album and going back to I guess your basics, which was you kind of also being a session musician in some songs and working yeah, together yeah. with artists. Like, I just find that so fascinating and amazing that you. Did that? Like, what made you feel like this was the moment to do it?
1: I didn't. It all came together by luck. And mm. um, while I was in Los Angeles in 2020 after Australia, I did the Charlie Puth track and Surfaces. Then I came back to England and people asked me to play and sing on the record, like Rina Sawayama. I did It's a Sin with Ollie Alexander from years and years. I did Gorillas. I did Glenn Campbell. I did Little Nas X. I mm. did. Um, God, got Nikki um, and Young Thug. I did Metallica, Miley Cyrus, Metallica. And I thought, you know, I've nearly got an album. So I went to L.A. when I saw you in May last year. Yeah. And I finished it off in the studio with Andrew Watt. And it just came together. But I love the fact that Penal had given me this track. And I just thought, I don't really want to sing the Rocket Man part. And we, you know, we, I wanted a girl to sing it. And your name was the first that we thought of. And it, you just happened to be there. And so it's funny how things in your career sometimes work out. By luck, and it was just luck that you were there, and you were the perfect person to sing on it. Um, Thank you. And uh, it just—that's how it happened. But you know, I had an incredible year in England last year. I had three number one singles, and a number one album. And I wasn't going to do anything. I, you know, I didn't want to do anything. And it all happened by accident. And that's—I love things like that when they happen because they're so, that's what makes what we do so yeah. exciting. It does. It you
0: does. Know? It's all—it's all like meant to be. And I think things just all work out the way that they're supposed to. And that actually kind of leads me to my next question because this podcast is called At Your Service. And I'm sure that our listeners would love to know like what are some missteps like musical or otherwise that you also feel like happened in the past that helped you form, you know, how you've lived your life since. Because I feel like, you know, with divine timing, with everything that happens for a reason, good or bad, certain things lead you to where you need to be. And so I think everybody would love to know.
1: Well. When I went to Los Angeles in the 1970s and played the famous Troubadour show, I didn't really want to go. I wanted to go to America, but I thought the time was wrong mm. um, that we were getting a following in England. And I was talked into it by Dick James, who was my, uh, I recorded for and it was kind of my management at the time. And I kind of got forced to go. And I thought, well, I'll go. and I can go to a record store. It's going to be okay. And I, I had no idea about was what was going to happen to me. Um, mm. And we went, and it, that, if I had said no, my career would never be totally different. Little things like that have always come along during my career, like the John Lennon duet, whatever gets you through the night. He came to see one of my shows in Boston, and he... He said, will you do a duet? And I said, well, if I do a duet and it gets to number one, you've got to come on stage with me. And because he hadn't <laughs> been on stage really since the peace concert in Toronto. But he said yes, and it did get to number one. Just little things like that, mm-hmm. you know, you have a little surprise. You think, God, if I hadn't have been there or been there at the time and done this or asked that, you know, i made a lot of missteps as well. I mean, I made a disco album at the end of the disco craze called Victim of Love, which is not my finest piece of work because it's not Pete Bellotti's fault who produced it. It's my fault for not giving it enough attention and time. And uh, mm-hmm. you learn from those mistakes as well because um, usually I love to be involved with everything I do. And after that, I just went to Germany and did the vocals and that was it. And it wasn't a hit and it taught me a lesson.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the surprises that come along, and you've got so many more surprises to come in your career, and Cold Heart was one of those things. It's like, Are You Ready for Love?, which Mm -hmm. got to number one in England. It came from a a six-track EP that I did with Tom Bell, who produced The Spinners and was one of my favorite producers. Uh, Years after it came out, it uh, was re-released on a Fatboy Slims label for Southern Fried, and it got to number one. And it's like, what? What? Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, it's, uh, why? Uh, but it's great. Those kind of surprises, you never know what's going to happen with a phone call or mm-hmm. someone will cover your song or someone will ring you up and say, Dua, can you do this with me? Um, and you'll think, yeah, why not? And it will lead to something fantastic. That's what makes us do what we do. Yeah. And they are the bonus the bonus things that happen. And you never stop being surprised by anything.
0: That's really true. I do. I feel the same way. I feel like, even sometimes, you know, when you said the whole, you know, going to America and performing at the Troubadour and that was something that maybe you hadn't envisioned doing. It's, it also shows that so much of our job also has a lot to do with like teamwork and trusting the people around us and also just like Mm -hmm. going and doing something and trying it out, you know, that it's for all those surprises that, that really makes such a difference. And, you know, I had this whole thing in the, in the beginning with my first album where I was really doing so much. I was Touring and I was performing and I was doing promo and I was trying to finish my album and I was doing so many things at the same time, and there were certain like TV performances that maybe I didn't have as much time as I wanted to do like rehearsals and perform and do it to the best of my ability. And then when people were mean to me online, I couldn't fight with them because I was like, oh, I totally understand <laughs> because I just yeah. I, I I wasn't able to be the performer that I really wanted to be. But it taught me a lesson into really wanting to become so much better, giving myself that time, really becoming a performer that I've always dreamt of being. And that was something that I took with me for, for future nostalgia. It was something that I didn't want to shy away from and make sure that everything that I did was like something that I, I really put my heart and soul into and made sure that I had enough time doing so.
1: Well, that's you're very clever because... You know, uh, record sales go up and down, but if you're a great performer and you have a good catalogue of songs, that's the most important thing. You get. Live performances are probably the most enjoyable thing. Records are like doing yeah. exams, um, <laughs> and they are fun, but they can be really, really hard work too. Mm-hmm. But a live show, and then when I first met you, and we did the Elton John AIDS Foundation, which you so kindly did, and I met you, and you, you were so organised, so professional, so ready, and i thought god that's because i'm i'm a great i like to see people who can sing live and can actually do what they say they can do and you did it and i was going god this girl is amazing i mean i came away from there after we'd finished, and i was in the car I thought god i was so impressed because i knew that you weren't just a record person for the radio and i think you had a huge career in front of you because you could deliver the goods live and what you just Thank said you. there you realized that you've got to be a good live performer you know, you're intelligent. Not many people put the work in to become that. I fell in love with you that day because I thought, she's the real deal. And I'm not saying that to, to butter oh, you thank up. I just you. Saying that it means a lot. It really, really impressed me. And I just thought, wow, she's fantastic. I mean, I always loved your records, but you were better than the record live, which was fantastic. Not many people are.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That means a lot. I mean, that day was was really, really special to me. I mean, I was... I I just couldn't believe that I I was just steps away from you singing Benny and the Jets with you. I mean, that was all my (laughs) dreams come true in one. We'll be right back after this short break. I want to talk to you about your, um, your memoir, Me, which is an international sensation, for one. And you talk about, you know, being in rehab and your counsellor asking you how you would fill that, what he called, like, the hole in the donut, you know, right. the space that was left by drugs. Like, I would love for yeah. you to kind of tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Well, when they mentioned you've got to fill the hole in the donut, I was so raw and I was so naive and I was thinking, well, I'm going to learn Spanish, I'm going to learn Italian, I'm going to learn to cook, all of which, of course, I never did. <laughs> um, but you're very raw and you're in rehab and you'll be asked all these questions. And I realized after I came out that the whole nut and the donut was because I had no faith in anything. Mm. And I did, if you become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to have faith in something. It doesn't have to be... God as we know or most people think of him. You just have to believe in, in something that's greater than yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd never thought of that before, and it changed my whole life. I mean, it took me a long time to come to grips with it because I was so angry about the word God and the word religion and everything like that. But that ended up being the hole in the donut. The hole in the donut, my soul was void of anything to believe in. All I believed in was my career, drugs, alcohol, sex, and I didn't put any credence in having a belief of uh, anything. And then I suddenly start to think, and there'd been so many coincidences in my life, why did I leave the band? Why did I go to the audition in Liberty Records when I was so not comfortable with myself, hated the way I looked, shy, (laughs) wouldn't say boo to a goose, but I did. Why did the envelope that was picked up be Burner's lyrics? Where did that come from? And it's still, to this day, little coincidences. I was alone in the house here, the same house I'm in now, in 1993, mm-hmm. and I didn't know anybody. And I rang my friend up in uh, in London and said, listen, it's Saturday afternoon, it's 2 o'clock. If you can't do it, don't worry, but I'd just love to meet some people. I don't know anybody except mm-hmm. for the AA people. And so I said, could you invite some people down for dinner? Well, it was a, a tall order, but... In the end, four people came down for dinner, and one of them was David. I love this story. Why did I make that phone call at 2 o'clock? I mean, I'm not very – I just thought, I've got to phone someone. I've, I've got to meet somebody. So I found my friend at 2 o'clock, and then that changed my life.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, if I hadn't met David, my life would have been – I hadn't met Bernie. If there's so many things like that that have happened to me, and I now realize that these were signs given to me by something mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. someone or whatever – and so I totally believe now that in, there's been so many times in my life that I've been saved by these kind of things or they push me forward that I do now believe. And I, that is to me was the hole in the donut, not having a belief. It's a belief in goodness and kindness, but it's belief that something somewhere is guiding you. And I mm. now have that belief. So in treatment, I hadn't got a clue what the hole in the donut was. But now I do.
0: I love that. That's so beautiful. I think, you know, also to be able to live life and be like, you know, think of it in the way where you say, oh, you know, whatever is meant for me will be. It also takes off the pressure of like trying to force fate in some way or in a direction that you want it to go. I think it's so important to also let life guide you in certain areas of your life. You'll never know what happens. It always surprises you and it's beautiful. (laughs) Everything's meant to happen. And now wonderful David is you know, in your life, and and so much has changed since then. And I think that's so amazing, the power of love also, when you least expect it, can change so much.
1: But You've got to make that first step. You've got to, if you're prompted, go for it. And a lot of people don't. But luckily, I've always made that step. And, I, you know, when I say my prayers now, I always say, thank you for giving me those clues. And I followed those clues. I didn't believe in you or didn't believe in anything to do with spirituality. But now I do because of that. And you mentioned before that in the earlier in the program that I don't look back. I very rarely look back. But when I do look back at those certain things that have happened to me during my life that have changed my life, mm-hmm. it gives me goosebumps. And um it happened with the children as well. I was never gonna have children and we went to an orphanage in the Ukraine where this little boy was following me around and well, I was holding him. He's only 18 months old. And I carried him around for a couple of hours and then we had a press conference at the end and they said you seem very fond of this little boy. Would you think of adopting him? And I went, oh, yeah, I'd lo- actually love to. And, of course, not thinking about social media. And he went around the world straight away. And then it was, a, you know, Elton John wants to adopt two children. It was him and his half-brother from this orphanage in Ukraine. And it became a bit of a pain because, you know, the press got involved and, you know, we were mm. too old to adopt children The draconian laws in Ukraine and Soviet Union, because I was gay, wouldn't allow us to do it anyway. And it started to go on and on and on. And David and I said, we've got to get these kids out of the orphanage because we're wasting time. They have to get out and have tactile love. And luckily they had a grandmother who um, took them. And then after that happened and we got them with their grandmother, David said, well, what do you think about having kids? And I said, well, you know, I always said no, but this little boy was telling me something. Mm. We're saying, come on, you can be a dad. Yeah. And that's when we decided to have children because of this little boy, Lev, in Ukraine. Um, I saw him two years ago in Ukraine. Oh, really? Yeah. I hadn't seen him since that day. And he walked into the room. He was 11 years old, well, 10 years old. And he came, just ran up to me and started crying. And I started oh. crying. Oh. And it was the most, they're very well, they're very good kids. You know, they're safe and sound. Mm. And we, you know, we keep a check on them. But um, that was another instance. Yeah, another not, beautiful, another
0: bit. beautiful sign.
1: Yeah, because I just thought I'm going to tour, and you know, I'm a gay man. I'm not going to have kids. I'll tour and until I drop dead. And then, of course, five years ago, David said to me, "Well, what do you think?" And I said, "I don't want to tour. I want to do one more big tour, and I want to be with my children." Which is a, for me, it's a huge turnaround, and that's what my life is now. I would never have said that. 20 years ago, if you'd have said what my life is like now, I said, you're going to be joking. But again, it's an instance of having a sign, following that sign, and that's made me more happy than I've ever been. Yes, I will finish the tour. Yes, it will be great. Mm -hmm. Yes, I will be happy when it's over.
0: It also shows that there's no right time really for, you know, to guess or think about what's next. I think especially with our jobs and being in this industry, there is no right time. When are you going to have kids? You know, you want to Mm -hmm. tour the world. You want to travel. You want to do this. There are so many things that kind of almost steer you away from the potential of thinking that you're going to have the chance to have a family. But when something like that comes your way, then you're just like, oh, this is exactly how it was meant to be and how it's meant to go. And and that was fate, and that was that's the beauty of it.
1: Yeah. And luckily enough, I had the right partner, and, mm. you know, the right husband. And so I'm very, very lucky. My life has actually panned out after a lot of upsets, a lot of disappointments, a lot of betrayals it's turned out to be the most wonderful life right now that i could have ever imagined and uh, so i'm so grateful and so lucky and uh, you know i i had the most incredible year last year but the most important part of the year was not the having the number one but the most important part was spending time during lockdown mm. with my sons and my husband and not wanting to leave the house i mean i never was the house i'm in i never spent two weeks in uh, because i was always going somewhere and uh, I had the most wonderful time in the house and uh, being with the boys and just, it was great. And so then the records came around and that was the icing on the cake. But it's, yeah, I'm in two moods about going to New Orleans. I, I've been here I know, so I long, know. I love it. And yeah. I'm just thinking, oh God, I know it's going to be fine when I get there and sit behind the piano and stop playing. They're going to come great. and
0: see you and it's yeah. going be, yeah. it's going to be amazing. And it's gonna be beautiful, a beautiful experience. Again, another one that you get to, to share with them. This is gonna be a very a very special yeah. tour. And you know, you and I last year we both had the the privilege of performing at last year's Brit Awards in London and you performed It's a Sin with Ollie Alexander, who right. of course played also the lead role in the T V drama It's a Sin. And to me, that felt like a really, like, outrageously sexy, hugely emotional, but like a really utterly incredible tribute as well to all of those that had lost their lives to AIDS or faced hate and discrimination. And I was really wondering, like, how um, like, how significant was that performance for you?
1: It was very significant because the program, I met Ollie through the program, mm. because I watched It's a Sin, and then we became friends after we did the record and and the performance and I phoned Russell T Davis, who wrote it and directed it and the whole cast have had dinner with him at the house and they did the um, Elton Donates Foundation event that you did as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was an incredibly powerful piece of um, television and drama because I lived through it and um, mm-hmm. it was so close and so true to how it was and it brought back memories and it was such a great thing for young people. To be able to see what people suffered and how they died so quickly, mm-hmm. how they were left behind by their parents, how people were so scared and they abandoned their children, and oh, it just—it it brought so many memories flooding back. And it was done in the most beautiful and thoughtful way, and it hit home. And it had 18 million viewers, and I think it was a, last year. It was probably the most, the best show on television. It was voted the best show on television in mm-hmm. the Guardian, and. You know, I got to meet Ollie, and he's become a great friend. I've got to meet Lydia West and all the boys from the show, Nathaniel Imari and Callum. And when you see something like that or you hear something or, you know, you see something that's brilliant, you have Mm. to applaud and get in touch with people and tell them, boy, this really helped me. It brought me back to where I was, but it just was so great to see it. I was in bits at the last episode, and no. David and I were sitting on the floor wanting to kill Keely Hawes. Um, oh. But that's why, you know, it was yeah. it was no, very, it was, very moving.
0: It was incredibly moving. It was incredibly moving. and But I am curious, though, because in some, you know, I, I feel like with certain articles or certain people's opinions, like also in the gay community the drama felt like it was also sometimes quite polarizing, you know, that, that some people thought that these types of stories like perpetuate the misconception that AIDS is a gay disease. Like, What do you think about that side of the perception?
1: It's a historical piece. I don't see what people are complaining about. It's of, of a time. Mm. The scenario had changed. It changed in the early 90s with the invention of retroviral drugs mm-hmm. and certainly it is not. You know, it's the second largest killer of women in the world, um, AIDS, mm-hmm. of young women. That's terrifying. So, I think to criticize the program for perpetuating the notion that AIDS is caused by homosexual and perpetuated by homosexual is a bad piece of journalism because it's a timepiece. You know, we have, as an organization at the Elton John AIDS Foundation, mm-hmm. We have come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And the misconception about AIDS is that it's over and it's not because the stigma is still there and that's our biggest barricade to success. We have the medicine to treat AIDS. We have the medicine to Mm -hmm. stop AIDS. But we have to get the medicine to people. We have to get people to take the medicine. And in certain situations, in certain countries, that's very hard, especially when you're dealing with Eastern Europe, the Middle East, Mm -hmm. Africa. Mm -hmm. But we can get there. And the more people see things about AIDS you know, the more they'll realize that now they can have a life. You know, I can take one pill a day and they can have a life into their 90s like anybody else.
0: Yeah, well, it, it can control the virus, right? It just kind of dials yeah. it down to the point where yeah. the virus yeah. is you undetectable the, and yeah. untransmissible.
1: Yeah. yeah, and then there's PrEP as well, which is another new invention that's come along from the scientists. You have to follow the science with this. And we've come, yeah. n- no disease has had such an incredible breakthrough as medically as AIDS. And um, it's just now, it's the stigma and mm-hmm. the ignorance and the miseducation, basically. Absolutely. That, that's stopping us. There's
0: a lot of people that speak from a place of miseducation, you know, about AIDS and HIV well, and like the LGBTQ, plus, no. You know, community, you've been fighting homophobia and AIDS misinformation for decades how can we properly get through to people who think that they have not experienced direct, you know, ties to the community? Like, what do you think it would take for us to change those people's minds?
1: They have to go off the internet and they have to stop mm. believing all these ridiculous things that are said on the internet, which apply mm-hmm. to all the anti-vaxxers as well. You follow the science. And these people say, I'm not going to put this in my body. And yet, you know, if they go abroad or they have to go to Africa or something like that, they have to have a malaria jab. Do They're that, not asking yeah. what's in that. I get so angry about it. I read an article by an actor yesterday in The Independent and he said he wished he could shut the internet down. And I'm, I'm with him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm with him. Because yeah, the internet
0: can be a wonderful place in so many ways, but it can spread so much misinformation and lead people to believing the wrong thing.
1: Yes. Yeah, totally responsible for the hatred and the misinformation that yeah. have made this world what it is today. And we're not living in, in a great world because of the internet.
0: Mm. Yeah, I guess the big part of it is the more that we can try and send out the right information, you know, try and fight the stigma, then we can change it, try and use the internet to the best of our ability to actually try and push forward. Use our platforms because yeah, we we've have been to, so we lucky have to keep to, be, to have them. Yeah. So to keep trying to share the right information and, and in the hopes that people, people learn and understand it from a different perspective and don't see things so short-sighted. I think it's really important. Well, you
1: can't give up. You cannot give up on this. And um, I hope you're right, that people someday will see the light. Mm. But you just have to be an optimist, don't you?
0: We're going to take another quick break. And while we're away, why don't you take a moment to go to service95.com and subscribe to our Service 95 newsletter. A new issue of Service 95 will hit your inbox every Thursday. And I don't think you'll want to miss a second of what we've been working on. So subscribe now at service95.com. We'll be right back after this short break. I'd love to talk a little bit. So this is about like a little bit fashion, but also still has to do with the foundation because you've got this incredible collection of sunglasses, yeah, which I'm, I'm very, very fond of. And you've also launched your eyewear collection and you did a deal with... Walmart to sell the glasses. And it had like a guaranteed donation of $1 million a year to the Elton John AIDS Foundation, which I think is absolutely amazing. And the funding is actually targeted in the southern states of the US. And I'd love to know whether that was a direct decision or what was the thought behind that decision? Was there something specific there?
1: Well, I've been asked many times to um, have my own line of sunglasses or glasses, whatever, because I'm associated with glasses. I don't really have to wear them (laughs) because I have 20-20 vision because I have my eyes corrected. But uh, glasses are part and parcel of who I am, and I Mm -hmm. I feel kind of naked without them. I've always turned it down because they've always been too expensive, and I just didn't want to be another name on a shelf. Mm -hmm. When Walmart approached us, we were very interested, and they came with a very, very good plan. And David and I sat down and went through all my old glasses. And what we did, we designed them in sections of my life, like schoolboy, college person, Royal Academy person, when I was in my group, when I started as a songwriter. And they've all got, mm-hmm. each pair of glasses has names. And we were determined that we'd keep the price of the glasses down. Okay. And these are Elton John 99, $90. Um, I love
0: those ones.
1: Very, very cool. And also, you know, if we were going to do it, Because Walmart, an American company, and the AIDS situation in the southern states of America is not great, Mm -hmm. especially the black population of men, of gay men, at the moment one in two gay black men will contract HIV. And we thought, I can't do anything, launch a line of sunglasses without something going to the Elton John AIDS Foundation. It's part and parcel of who we are, and it's part and parcel of, you know, it's nearly 30 years old, the AIDS Foundation. So we decided to make it fun, make it affordable and make it philanthropic as well. And so far it's doing really, really, very, very well. We've only just started, but it's it's had a great reaction. And obviously we want to grow this into a big company and take it into Europe and take it into China and places like that where we can grow the business but also create a lot more money for the Elk John Hayes Foundation. And raise it's, awareness it's part, as well. It's fun for me because Dave and I sit here and we're going through these glasses and they come with all these great designs. And You know, all the glasses are basically made in China, whether it's Gucci, whether it's Tom Ford, mm-hmm. whether it's Ray-Ban. And the markup on glasses is so ridiculous. I mean, so the quality of the glasses is quite amazing. And that's why I didn't want to make glasses that were cheap And fell to bits. So these aren't cheap and they don't fall to bits, but they are affordable for my fans. And they're really, there's so much variety of them. And uh, they come from my history. And if it can contribute to people getting well and tested, then it's uh, two birds with one stone.
0: I love that. I think it's amazing, you know, being able to, you know, give back, do something that's also special and meaningful for you, but also for the fans. It's like, it's very. Like I love the idea of this whole three sixty like give back and you get something back in return, which is really quite wonderful from right. awareness to donations to everything, and I think you've been someone who i I always look at and say, you know, I feel like you've done so many things right and in the best way for the best interest, but always doing something with so much passion <laughs> and and love yeah. and and something that i'm always I also think is so amazing is um because i I want to get on to asking about some of your lists, because that's also something that I really want to know. But your love for always finding new artists and wanting to champion people, I think, is so amazing, because in this industry, for so long, it's been, or at least people say that, you know, artists are constantly pushed against each other or competing or, you know, wanting to you know, fight for, I don't know, there's this kind of like air of pressure of who's going to be at the top and what we're doing and what, you know, Mm. not liking each other. And I think we need to get away from that and see that we're all here to like support each other. And I think the way you do it, you do it so beautifully and so amazingly. And it's always exciting to to listen to to Rocket Hour and learn about new artists and new music and things that you love and things that inspire you. And for my first of the two lists that I want to ask you about is who are five new musicians or acts that you feel like we need to know about? Let's, like, I would love to help spotlight those artists as well. I'm going to um, put it on the newsletter this week as well. So,
1: God, you've got to put me on the spot here. I just <laughs> did the Rocket Hour that, uh, last week. We recorded four shows, and my guests were Wet Legs who are two girls originally from the Isle of Wight who are fantastic. Cool. And they have an album called Wet Leg coming out in the spring. There's an act called Yard Act with a boy called James Smith as the lead singer who I really, really love. Um, and then I interviewed St. Paul and the Broken Bones who are from Birmingham, Alabama, not really well-known in Britain, but they're really fantastic and incredible live. Cleo Sol is one of my favourite singers. She's the girl who sings on the um, Salt Records. She has an album out now called Mother. And there's a boy called Toulouse. Mm-hmm. who had this ridiculous, beautiful song. What happens is that Apple sent me all these new releases, about 80 to 100. Oh, David wow. and I listen to them and decide which ones we like. And if we don't have enough, I always come from the top of my head. And, you know, it's enabled me to meet so many young artists, I mean, who have become friends like mm. Sam Lewis, S.G. Lewis, Ollie, Brandy Carlyle, Surfaces, a lot of people on the album have become friends of mine as a result of it. Andrew Watt, the producer. Whenever I hear something new, I try and get them on my show, like Channel Trey, who I love.
0: Oh, I love him. I think he's amazing. He's
1: fantastic. Yeah. Um, and there's a new Bonobo record out with uh, Jordan Rakai. Oh, I got That you. is incredible. Yeah. Um, And then a fantastic Burner Boy record with Wizkid. And um, there's there's so much.
2: There
0: is so much. And that's so great. Everything that you've said, I've soaked it up. I'm ready to go and listen to it. Maybe we'll make a little playlist with some of these artists. And and, and you know,
1: uh, what gets me is that they're good enough to be on the radio, but they don't get on the radio because radio tends to not put them on the radio because they have a formula and a formula. So what I try to do on the Rocket Hour is... You know, just give them some exposure and stay with them and keep playing them like I did with Sam Fender when he first came out and now look at him. And it's just great to see people grow. And it's been so hard for young artists to grow Mm -hmm. because live gigs are imperative to how you grow as an artist and a writer and how you learn your craft. You know, with the pandemic going on for the last two years, it stifled a lot of artists. All these artists like Rina Sawayama, who's been, become a huge friend of mine because of the rocket out. And mm-hmm. they're all dying to get out there, like you are and I am, to show people what they can do. Because, yeah. um, you know, I've seen videos of all these people, Yard Wet Leg, They're brilliant live. I mean, they're fantastic. So when they actually get out there and do it, people are going to just love what they do. And I'm just, you know, it's great to encourage people. People did that to me when I was first successful in America. I had telegrams from George Harrison and Leon Russell was great to me. The Beach Boys were great to me. The band were incredible to me. Linda Ronstadt, all those kind of people, Bob Dylan. So when they were nice to me, I thought oh, it gave me an affirmation that what I was doing was maybe great. And it's like, oh, my God, if they think I'm good, I must do better. I must do better. Mm -hmm. And so a phone call or a message to someone when, they're, you know, uh, the anchoress was another one that we had on the show, weather station, all these people who are just great, Yola, Yeah, Yebba, they're all brilliant artists. They just need to uh, get more attention, and uh, I hope they do.
0: Yeah, well, I hope I can follow in your in your footsteps a little bit by helping you spotlight these artists and giving them a platform as well because that's something that's really important to me for sure. So yeah. thank you so much for your for your lists as well that we can add to that because that's I think it's going to make such a massive difference to these artists, especially like you're saying, without having had the opportunity to go on tour and really kind of practice their craft in a different way or showcase it or help grow their fan base. I think whatever we can do to help yeah, is so. really, really important and yeah
1: what we must remember too that there are all sorts of different kinds of music mm. I mean there's people who like Ed Sheeran that wouldn't like idols, that yeah. wouldn't like Wet Leg, that wouldn't like Little Sims but there's music is for everyone Absolutely. and there's all different sorts of music and there's something and, for
0: everyone
1: and there is something for everyone you have to understand the genre that people are you, know, like you have Sleaford Mods and you have Yard Act and you have idols who are writing lyrics about what's going on today and Sam Fender mm-hmm. as well I can't do that. I'm not very good. I don't write lyrics. But I admire what they do. Mm -hmm. And so you have to, you know, we're having Little Sims on the show as soon as we can to do something on the show because her album is terrific as well. You have to have a look. When I see rappers in the studio, I saw Young Thug doing his freestyle rap on Always Love You. It blew my mind. And I've seen Marshall Mathers, Eminem, do it. And, Mm. you know, people say, oh, rap music. It's not. It's it's a different form of music. We don't understand. I don't understand how to do it. But we have to have a little bit more tolerance to other people's music. But we also have to get people who aren't so mainstream onto mainstream radio. That's really, really important.
0: I agree with you on that for sure. I think that's really important. And I've got one last list question. Okay. I absolutely loved Rocket Man, and I think I've told you that in person of how, like, how many times I've watched it and how I, how I absolutely love it. And I think Taryn Egerton did such a brilliant job at playing you. But I'd love to know what other biopics do you think like have been done right?
1: The Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? Was just so brilliant. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne as Ike and Angela Bassett as Tina really show what she had to go through to get where she is now, and it's heartbreaking. But she got redemption, and how? But it was a brilliantly, really raw documentary, uh, doc, a film, not a documentary. I thought the Johnny Cash one was great. and I haven't seen the Johnny Cash one. It's called Walk the Line. i got to see that I think one. Reese Witherspoon and Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, wow. That was fantastic. I can't think of anything else that I particularly thought was wonderful. Um, the Ray Charles one was good. It's, um,
0: that was that the was
1: Jamie Foxx one, right? Jamie, Jamie Foxx. Yeah. It's so hard to play someone, and he was good. I and uh, Ray Charles, was yeah, Ray, I enjoyed that. Because Ray Charles was one of my true heroes, I would say those three. And yeah, I'd please forgive me because I haven't—I have forgotten loads.
0: No, that's no, 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 that's perfect. Three, three is good. It, yeah. it gets us just whenever somebody feels like they want to watch something, learn about someone's life. I think sometimes uh, the way that it gets depicted over film is always really interesting to see that.
1: I can't wait for the Prince one. That would be amazing.
0: Oh my! Is that, that is that be. in the works?
1: I don't know. I don't think think it's even in the works, but it would be fantastic. Wow, yeah, that would
0: be fantastic.
1: Okay, my darling.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been so, so fun.
1: I love talking to you. I love you. And listen, good luck with your tour and I hope I see you in America.
0: Thank you. I'm going to come and see you somewhere. I'm going to come and find you. Okay, let me know. All right, lots of love. Thank you so much. Lots of love. Well, I'm absolutely pinching myself that that just happened. Thank you, Elton, for your time and your generosity. I'm forever grateful to be in your orbit, and I'm so thankful you were able to join me on At Your Service today. And thank you all for listening. I hope you learned as much from Sir Elton as I did. I know I'll be carrying our conversation with me for many years to come. I'm also thankful for Elton John's constant vital spotlighting of new, young, fresh artists. I could only wish to have half the curiosity he does at this stage in his career. With that in mind, I'm always on the hunt for new artists I need to be listening to. Who's new to the scene that you're loving? What songs should I be adding to my on-the-road playlists? Who's not getting the sort of attention you think they deserve? Send your pics to podcast at service95.com with your name and Instagram handle, and we may feature your voice notes on an upcoming episode. Last week with our special guest, Hanya Yanagahara, we asked you, our wonderful listeners, for the authors and books that you'd recently discovered and loved. But so many of you also got in touch to tell me how much you loved the conversation. Here's one voice note I really wanted to share with you.
2: Hey, Dua, this is Sophia calling from New York City. I just listened to your podcast with Hanya from last week and... Um, i absolutely adored it i've read both little life and to paradise and your dialogue with her was really wonderful especially around kind of discussing your names i myself am ukrainian i was born there i immigrated here when i was around three and a half years old and sophia was actually not a very popular name 20 years ago you know nowadays um you see it in the top baby list but when i was a kid sophia with a ph wasn't very common and so I had this Dream of being named Katie, um, my whole childhood, and you know, being able to discuss it and hear other immigrants feel that sense of alienation to a certain degree because of not fitting in or culture, I think is so important. So I, I really appreciate you pointing it out and talking about it on the podcast. And then to answer your book recommendation, I would love to recommend uh The Lincoln Highway by Amore Towels. His book is just so magnetic and colorful and it's a coming-to-age adventure story that is told from 10 different perspectives and you won't want to put it down. Um, There are times where you're crying. There are times where you are laughing out loud. I think you'll really enjoy it. And again, just thank you for all the work you put in on the podcast. Keep it up.
0: Thank you so much, Sophia. I love that voice note. And I will definitely, definitely check out that book for sure. And yes, here's to us appreciating our names and honoring our roots. I'd also love if you could subscribe to my newsletter, Service 95, because our new issue is one of my favorites we've done yet. It's a takeover by the drag superstar, Sasha Velour, who won RuPaul's Drag Race Season 9 with her incredible, so emotional, and it's not right, but it's okay, lip syncs back in 2017 sasha has written an incredible guide to drag celebrating it as both art form and advocacy it's a magnificent inclusive and really quite informative story that taught me so much about drag so please support sasha and her work by subscribing at service95.com now thank you as always for tuning in to Dua Lipa at your service we'll see you next week with yet another very special guest